0: Hey, uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you guys here on a Sunday. Uh, a little bit about Redemption Church. We are one church. We have multiple congregations. We have six other congregations outside of here in Tempe. Uh, five are located here throughout the valley, and then we have one in Flagstaff. And we believe that all of life is offered Jesus, and so simply put, we believe that Christ on the cross and through his resurrection was not only saving souls, but promised to redeem all of his creation. And so we seek to make disciples in response to that truth. And the best way we go about making disciples is one, in a Sunday service in which we sing together, we take the sacraments together as well as we hear God's word together. Um, Also, the other place is in redemption communities, which are smaller gathering of people who meet in various places and various times uh, throughout the week to encourage one another and grow in an understanding of who Christ is. If this is something you're interested in, being a part of a community, best thing you could do is take the information card, which is in the seat in front of you, Fill out your name, your email address, and any questions that you may have, you can drop those off in the offering boxes, which are located in the back um, by the doors, or you can just drop them off at the um, information table, which is also located on your way out. Um, a couple of announcements that I'm going to race through here real quick. First is Redemption Women. Um, if you are a woman and you want to be a part or you've never been a part of and you want to check it out, this upcoming Wednesday at 10 a.m. and there's a different time also at 6.30 p.m. So there's two sessions, 10 a.m. and 6.30. Um, you can RSVP for the, the children that you are going to be checking in if you have children at redemptionaz.com. If you do have children you're going to bring them, please RSVP. We do have enough staff child care, so don't let that be an issue. We'd love to see you guys there. Um, they'd love to see you guys there and um, have a lot of fun on Wednesday. Um, second is that... Since it is our outward focus Sunday, and that is a Sunday in which we focus on something that's outside of ourselves, what we want to be able to highlight today um, is, is Good Friday and Easter. And Good Friday and Easter because it's just one of those days in our particular state, in our particular country, that people are more likely to go to church that wouldn't normally go to church. So people who normally would not show up to a service would come. And so we're asking you to intentionally go out and invite people, not from other churches, we don't want people from other churches to come here, not because we don't like them or anything like that. Uh, we'd rather have room for people who do not know Jesus to be able to hear the gospel. Um, in terms of what I'll be teaching from, on Easter we'll, we'll look in the Gospel of John when Jesus raises Lazarus, and so we'll do that for Easter. And then on Good Friday we'll look at Jesus' um, moment in the garden, and i um, looking at the cup of wrath. And So that'll be Friday night, and our Good Friday services are 5.30 p.m. and 7 p.m., and there will be child care for both of those. This is something that's new for us. We haven't had childcare before, um, and we never had two services. We have limited child care, but not two services, but we have full child care for the 5.30 as well as the 7 p.m., and that way the kids won't have to necessarily be in here. Uh, um, Good Friday is usually really dark, and, and sometimes that can scare kids. And as promised, I'm going to bring the lamb and crucify— or excuse me, slaughter the lamb and sprinkle the blood on everybody, and they may not like that. It's like, it's like Bambi. It's like, no, not Bambi, but still a lamb, though. Um, so only at the 5.30 are we doing that, um, when it comes to Easter Sunday, you guys, I'm joking. <laughs> Easter Sunday, we have four services, 7 a.m., 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., and 11.30 a.m. What the guys have been saying, and I agree with them, is if you can go to the 7 a.m., go to the 7 a.m. Um, you, you can be the first person to hear the news, right? And so 7, 7 a.m., uh, we'd love to see you guys there. If you have children... You don't want to go to that service because they won't have child care for that. They won't have children's ministry for that service, but all the other three we will have. 8.30 a.m., try to stay away from the ten as possible, um, and then 11.30 a.m. But here's the deal. If you're inviting people that don't know, know Jesus, come to all four. We don't care which service you come to, right? Promise people food, and don't just promise them food and then not really give them food. Take them to your house, feed them, have a good time, um, and enjoy just the celebration of Easter. We will. One of the things we love about Easter is uh, we don't have any night services, so we go home and stay home, which on Sundays that's not usually the case for us, and so we're looking forward to that. Um, What also the guys put together is they have this um, flyer here, so it says Easter uh, Sunday Service. That way you can remind yourself to invite people for Easter. We'd love to have many of your friends and family members, or you can even hand it to them on the back. Um, It has our service times and what they can expect as well as our address here, and so you can give this to a friend and invite them here to one of those particular services we Love to have them there. We're gonna try to get our seven o'clock PM to try to all of those kids, those um, students without kids, to come to the seven AM because, like I said, they don't they don't have kids. There, many of them are kids, and so we're gonna try to get them to the seven AM. And so we're looking forward to it. So be praying for us, be praying with us. More than anything, that we, um, those of us in this room who are Christians, that we would be able to celebrate the resurrection. It's such a beautiful truth. And then also that those who have never heard the gospel, never believed upon the gospel, will be able to believe in Jesus. So looking forward to that. I believe that's all I have for our time of announcements. I wanted to encourage you guys. Many of you guys remember to bring peanut butter, um, which is really, really good. And I checked, no joke, you guys brought new peanut butter. So congratulations. There was not, like, peanut butter with the scoop out of it or anything like that. Appreciate it. If you forgot and you're starting to feel guilty, no need to feel guilty now. But if you don't bring any back later, feel guilty tomorrow. So we'll do that, all right? Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand um, and keep it raised high. Give these guys some time to be able to hand out the Bible so they can see you. Um, Don't feel shy. Go ahead and raise, raise, raise your hand. Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 19. If you don't um, own a Bible, please keep the one that we are handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can have a Bible. You can grow in an understanding of God's word and knowledge. If you forgot your Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and then you could just put it back on the shelf on the way out. Uh, Romans chapter 9. Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to do the same thing that I did last week. I'm going to give the same disclaimers. And those disclaimers were this. Last week I said, you're going to hear some things in Romans 9 that's going to make you confused. Um, It's going to maybe lead you to asking many questions. It could make you angry. It could make you sad. Um, I said it could make you angry. And then, um, and then some of you were angry and you emailed me. Thanks. Um, and then, um, it's totally fine. We, we actually had an address here for you to email questions in, and many of you did. And so last hour, I tried to get through all the questions. I wasn't able to, so I'm going to try to do such um, in, this, in, this, in this hour. And the rumors are, well, the sermon went really long. That's why parking was hard. No, it wasn't the sermon. We sang too many songs. <laughs> and so we'll figure that one out later. <laughs> so we're going to try to answer those questions. And so let's jump into the text. Um, same disclaimers. Listen, wherever you are on understanding this, it's okay? Um, if you love Jesus, that's a starting point. We'll walk through all of that. There's a lot of questions that come from here. And you guys have a lot of questions that you've already emailed in that we'll try to walk through. So the goal for the day for me is to walk through verses 19 through 29. And I'm just gonna walk through the text um, and so I can leave myself enough time to be able to answer the questions. And so many of the questions that you guys ask will be in the text. And so I won't spend a ton of time in the text dealing with them, but we'll deal with them afterwards. So let's do me a favor. Let's pray together, and then let's um, also pray for me. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you and pray that your name will be exalted. So thankful, Father, for just the many, many stories, the many, many activities that we see that you are doing in the midst of our, our congregation, in the midst of our city, and how you're moving. God, how you are reconciling marriages, Lord how you were drawing men and women to yourself for the first time, how you were deepening those of us in Christ and faith. God, how you were revealing sin in areas that we didn't even know were there, only to acknowledge and give us your grace for forgiveness and power to live for you. God, you are more than enough. You are more than sufficient. Your word is more than sufficient. And so as we come to your word, we pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate your word that we may understand it. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me kind of run through in Romans chapter 9, if you weren't here last week. Romans chapter 9, I, I said, was Paul beginning to make an argument about uh, a question that he, excuse me, a statement that he made in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul made this beautiful promise. He says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, nothing. He says, nor height, nor death, angels, nor demons. He says, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from that love. That was a promise from God. Well, Paul, speaking to a church in Rome, um, primarily Jewish people, the Jewish people were going, wait, that promise sounds great, we'll never be separated from God's word, but wait a minute, wasn't there another promise that it seems like God has reneged on? And that promise was that in Genesis chapter 12, God chose a man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and he says, I will bless you, and every nation that blesses you, your family, I will bless them. So he was going to save the world through a particular family. What he also let us know is that they believe, the Israelites believed that when God said that he was going to save Abraham's family, that it was going to be every single person that was an ethnic Jewish person. And so they thought that salvation was by race instead of grace. Because they were given the law and many other things, they thought it was by works instead of faith. But it's always been about grace, and it's always been through faith. So what Paul is saying is, if you can get this, it is not about you, it's about God. It's about what God does. And Paul is saying, there's no way that God has let go of his promises. Maybe you didn't interpret the promises the way that God meant it. And so he starts off in Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5, saying, My heart is for my people. My heart is for my family. My heart is for my friends that are Jewish, that don't know Jesus. He goes, I even wish myself that I could be separated, that they could come in, that they would be able to know Christ. And then he says in verse 6, but it's not as if the word of God has failed. And then he unpacks his argument. we talked about last week is his argument was that God's means, upstream, we use that illustration, upstream, downstream, upstream, that God has elected a people. And he did this before the foundation of this world. And he did not do it because of anything that we could do or would do, not because of our good works, not because of our bad works, but not in spite of us, but because of his love. Not because of something he saw down the quarter of time that we would ever choose him or not choose him, but because of his love. And he did this upstream. Meaning this was all God and his sovereignty and his love and his mercy. And then he began to unpack that. Paul did. He says, just like he chose Abraham, just like he chose Isaac, um, just like he chose Jacob over Esau. And we got to the latter part of verse 13, and it says, Jacob I loved, and Esau hated. He paused for a second, said, Did God just say that? And we said, Oh yes, he did. Right? And then from there, we said, What what Paul was teaching is that God, upstream, elected an innumerable amount of people, chose an innumerable amount of people. Um, who would receive his mercy and then passed over some. And we said, that's where it gets hard. That's where we wrestle. And that's where the questions come. And and that's where our wrestling comes with. But your wrestle and our wrestle is with the scripture and ultimately with God. And we said, it seems like God is not fair. From there we said, okay, if we think of fairness as being God doesn't treat people the same, we say we read through the Bible and we see God doesn't treat people the same. But if you think of fairness as God, we should get what we deserved, we said, According to the Bible, what every single person deserves because of sin is God's wrath and justice. Everybody said, no, 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 we, didn't mean f- we, didn't, we, don't want, we don't want fairness no more, right? We said, but some get justice, what they deserve, because of our sin, and then some, because of God's love, get mercy. So I'm going to read verses 16 through 18, because another question comes up for Paul, and that will lead us through our time. <clears throat> verses 16, so then it depends on... Not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Verse 19, we'll pick up today. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? He starts off going, okay, Paul. He, he has this diatribe. This is when Paul is uh, assuming and he knows that there's going to be a question. If someone's going to ask me, okay, Paul, if God chooses people upstream, he elects. We're not a part of it. It's an innumerable amount of people. If he does this, then downstream where we are, if someone is rejecting God and does not believe in God, um, isn't it God's fault? Because he's the one who didn't choose them upstream. I mean, why does he still find fault in anybody, right? And what's interesting is many of us ask the same question. And this is crazy because this question is not new because Paul said, well, 2,000 years ago, I know you're going to ask this. And the premise of that is going, um, isn't it God's fault? I mean, he's the one who didn't do something here, and isn't that his fault because I don't believe here or this person doesn't believe here? And here's what Paul is doing here that I love. Paul is not separating what many of us do. What we naturally do as people, what we naturally do as, as pastors, as theologians, and as men and women, is that we separate two fundamental truths that, should ne- that are inseparable. And Paul doesn't do that. And that is God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility. On, on one side, you have that God is absolutely sovereign, in control of all things, including salvation. On the other side, you have man is free, and man has a volition, the ability to choose. And he doesn't separate that. What happens is you have some people who separate, um, they want to highlight God's sovereignty at the exclusion of man's responsibility and choices. And so they highlight that. On the flip side, you have people who want to highlight human responsibility at the exclusion of God's sovereignty and there's errors in both. What we have here is not is a tension and a mystery. doesn't mean it's not true, but it's a mystery. We don't, we, don't, we don't understand everything, but just because something is a mystery doesn't mean it's not true and we should not explain it away. So Paul is saying, it's it's, God did do this, but we have the responsibility to believe, um, trust in Christ, and obey. So yes, God did something upstream, but we still have the responsibility to respond to the gospel downstream. You say, how does that work? And I go, I don't know, right? So we'll move forward. So here's, here's, here's what Paul says next now to answer this. He goes, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why did you make me this way, like this? So Paul's point is going, he's not, hear hear me, Paul is not saying that some punk kid just came to him, asked a question that he didn't like, like, who are you to say anything? Shut up, right? He doesn't say that, right? That's not his point here. What Paul is saying is, there is a problem that he's already brought up in Romans chapter one, verse 25. And that problem is, because of sin, it says in Romans chapter one, verse 25, that we have traded a lie, um, the truth, for a lie. And we worship the creature and not the creator. And we would worship ourselves that we naturally think that we are self-determined, self-governed, autonomous beings. And so we get to choose what we want apart from any God or any moral authority. In fact, that's exactly what our first mother and our first father wanted in the the garden. Is that Adam himself wanted to be autonomous, self-autonomous. That literally means to be a law unto himself. And since then, we as his children, that we have been doing that. And Paul is saying, yes, there's human freedom, and, but you're not as free as you think you are. That your human freedom, it bucks up against God's freedom or his sovereignty. And his sovereignty will win out. Whether you trust in Jesus or not, he's still God, and he will always be God. And so when Paul says, who are you, old man, to talk back to God, doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask questions doesn't mean that we can't ask God why is this happening what are you doing I'm wrestling with this when we're asking questions of an almighty sovereign God through his word and through prayers that's not it's saying don't put God on trial as if somehow he answers to us and you say well Ricardo but this is hard for me to believe hey it's it's hard for me to believe too but I can't go to God and say hey God I don't really like this this, I don't think you should have done that and he's like oh Ricardo you're right let's sit down and talk about this let's think about a better way Maybe me and you together, we, we can figure this out. <laughs> he's never done that. <laughs> so. But what he says here is, can what is molded say to its molder? Like, why did you make me this way? What he's talking about now is he's, he's saying God is sovereign. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who gets to do what he wants to do. Continue reading with me in, in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Here's what he's saying here. He goes, God, doesn't God get to do what he wants to do with what he created? If he alone is sovereign, if he is God, if he has the authority that the scriptures say, doesn't he get to do what he wants to do? It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about us, and he doesn't love us. We'll get to that. But doesn't he get to do what he wa- Does he get to be God, or do you get to um, make claims about what type of God he should be? Because if you're making claims about what type of God he should be, then that may not be the God of the Bible. If he's the God of the Bible, then he can do whatever he decides to do with his creation. I mean, think of it this way in a, in a, different, in a in different illustration is many of us grew up with parents that you knew you can do whatever you wanted to do. You can have your freedom as children, but eventually they won out, right? Some of us, we didn't have parents like that. Some of us have become parents like that, which is a whole other, we'll get to that later, um, is, is um, there was a definite healthy fear in my life, like I love my dad, I feared my mother, right? Which is, you know, that's the case, but you guys have never met my mom, if you met her be like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? And so essentially what my mom would say is, and you guys know sayings that parents say, which we say, when I have kids, I'm never gonna do that, I do all of them, all of them, well, get over here, whoa. <laughs> it's like, it's in me, right? And there's that sense that, um, my mom would always say things like, when I would say dumb things, she'd go, you must be beside yourself. And I always like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I'm right here. Or am I right here? <laughs> it's like. <laughs> and then one thing she'd always say is when I would just, just do dumb stuff as a kid, she'd always say, boy, do you understand me? I understand you. I brought you into this world, and I, I could take you out of it. And the problem was, I believed it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you can. Let me just stop right now, right? There, there was an authority there, right? And, and Paul is not just saying, be quiet, don't talk, God is God, you're man. But, but he is saying he gets to do what he wants to do. Like, he is the one who is in charge. And then he begins to talk about this illustration about clay. And that's where we get kind of get confused. He goes, doesn't he not have the ab- ability and the, the right, the authority, to take out of some clay and make it for dishonorable use and other clay for honorable use? And we go, oh, why does he have to use the word dishonorable? Like, why, why, does, he, why does he have to use it that way? Well, let's continue to walk through this. Um, verse 22. What if God, he gives the what if, what if God, Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, here's the two pictures that he has. Um, Paul is saying there are some for dishonorable use or vessels of wrath, and there's other vessels of mercy because what if God, he's saying this what if, what if in the dynamic of love that God was able to be patient with those. And when it says objects of wrath, when it says um, vessels of wrath and and, and, uh, dishonorable use, he's not saying that God made people bad, and he made them to put his wrath on them. That's never, that's never taught in scripture. What he is saying, as we said last week, is that there are some, every single person in this world, by the way, this clay is a depraved clay. The clay is not neutral. That the clay in itself, that if God doesn't do something in our lives, that if he does not give us the Holy Spirit, the trust in Jesus, if he doesn't sovereignly uh, intervene in our life, that we will do what we will naturally want to do. That's the whole purpose of Romans 1, is that God in his passive wrath says, do what you want to do. I'm doing it, and I'm going to keep doing it. That was Pharaoh. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And he's saying that, that, that some get justice because of their sin. That's all downstream, guys. Interesting, too, is when you look in the, and I normally don't like doing this, but if you look in the Greek, which I know none of us here speak Greek, but if you look into the Greek, when it talks about um, the wrath, it's, it's, uh, it's passive, meaning God is not the subject. He's not the one that is making somebody not believe in him. That's never it. When it talks about objects or vessels of mercy, God is the subject. He's, he's the one who's making it happen. And so what you have is, if you look at it like gravity, we all, because of sin, are going down. And God himself decides to say, those who trust in Christ, those whom I have elected, which don't want to separate those things, those who believe downstream, those who have done something upstream, how does that work? We don't know. But through his mercy, he says, I'm going to save some. And Paul says, what if God, in his patience, desiring to show his wrath and his power, he endured vessels of wrath. In order, right? Here's why. The whole point of what Paul is going to, in order, like the whole point of what he's saying, is not to tell who's elect, who's not. That's not it. The whole point is to say, in order to display his glory, the riches of his glory, to those who are objects of mercy. the question is, who are they? People who trust in Jesus. We don't know what God did up here, upstream. But we trust in Jesus. He is trying to display his mercy. He doesn't display his glory. And so, what, what, he's, what Paul is saying is, what if? What if God and his patience? Now, when you see in the Bible God talk about patience, what do you read about? You read that it is his patience, right? Romans chapter 2, verse 4 is patience and his kindness and his long suffering is meant, why? To lead people to repentance. That God is saying, I am waiting, I am patient, I'm patient with evil as evil grows up. I'm showing mercy and I'm showing mercy that people who are here who are not trusting in me will be able to repent and believe in Jesus. That's the whole point of why he's doing that. And he's saying, and this will bring me glory. And I will show my glory through this. That God in himself has left us here. Those of us in this room who are Christians, we don't get saved and go straight to heaven. We're here to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, to pray, to evangelize. That God in his patience is saying, come, repent, and believe in Jesus. Paul says, what if God's doing that and he's showing his glory? He's showing where we ought to have been because of our sin, but now because of his mercy towards us. And God by no means is obligated to give mercy. He's saying, "This this is good news. And you realize that there was nothing I brought to the table. God brought his love and his mercy for me. If we've ever had a question that if God himself, is he loving, is he merciful, is he gracious, all we have to do is stop and look at the cross where his son bled for us, where they nailed him to the cross, that God himself will, willfully entered, in, entered into our mess and put on flesh in order that it may be ripped, that he may bleed in order that we may be forgiven, that we who were deserving of justice, that he would take our justice, that we may walk and receive his mercy. And if you're, as Christians, we, we hear that and we go, thank you, thank you, because there was no other way. There was no other way. And so as we continue here, Paul begins to show what God is doing. He shows here in verse 24, even us, he's talking about, even us, who he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentile, and he quotes here two Old Testament passages, one from Hosea and the other from Isaiah, excuse me, from Hosea and the other from Isaiah. In verse 25 it says this, as indeed says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be, they, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom um, and like, become like Gomorrah. Here's what Paul is doing. He's taking these two texts. And the first one is from Hosea, when the, when the Israelites who had rebelled and rebelled and rebelled against God, God sent them into exile. And he says, you rejected me. He goes, but there's coming a day when those who were not my people, those who rejected me, will be called my people. And Paul's saying it's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. Going back to what he said in verse 6, that the word of God does not fail. He goes, it's Jews and Gentiles. When God promised to Abraham that he was going to bless Israelites, it was not just saving people from the, um, the nation of Israel, but also saving people from the world. And he says, those people who were, who were not beloved will be called loved, that God would display his mercy and his grace. And then in Isaiah, when he quotes there, he says what he's doing there is he's saying, I'm talking to Jewish people. He goes, listen, if God wouldn't have spared, if he wouldn't have been merciful, if he wouldn't have been merciful, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you don't know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God wipes them out. And what Paul is saying is God is not ever choosing to wipe everybody out. That he's gracious and that, that salvation is an, op- is an opportune time in the work of Christ for all people who would trust in Jesus to follow him. So that's the mercy and grace of God. And so to wrap a bow on it, do we know what happens upstream? We know that God's elects. Are we a part of it? No. Our life is lived downstream. We pray and we share. We trust And we believe that Christ came, he lived, he died, he was raised, and every single person, every single child, every single man who believes upon him will be saved and have eternal life with him, living in his love. Amen? All right. So now we're going to get to some questions. Keep your uh, Bibles open. Um, We'll walk through these. Hopefully we can get through all of them. Um, All right. Since Moses lived in sin and did not believe that Jesus saved him from his sins, since Jesus was not yet around, does 915 say that God chose to give Moses mercy and allow him into heaven. Basically, is Moses in heaven? I love that. Let me just make it simple for you, (laughs) all right? So the question, I think the bigger question here is, how are people in the Old Testament saved? Because if we say we have to believe in Jesus Christ, how are people in the Old Testament saved? And so let me just kind of give you something that the Bible teaches. From Genesis to Revelation, it's always by grace, and it's always through faith. It's always God, undeserved gift, that we have to believe in. The, the, um, the, The object of our faith is God his ways and his promises, what he has said and what he promised to do. And that's the case in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The question then li- lies with, um, with the content, with the content. Like, what is it that we know? And so just to read here what this person asked, if you go to 915, if you can put 915 up there, um, just what, what's happening here, it says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have, com- have compassion. That's quoting from, I believe, Exodus 33, where Moses is getting ready to lead God's people in the promised land. He wants to lead them, and he says, God, if I found favor, another word for grace, if I found grace in your life, could you do something? And he prays this audacious prayer. He goes, can you show me your glory? And God's like, listen, I can't show you my whole glory, but I'll pass by, and you can see my backside, and it's going to blow your mind, right? And so that's exactly what happens. Moses comes down from the mountain. They ask him to put a veil on his face. like It was amazing. But in there, he quotes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. God says that. And he says, I will have compassion on who I have compassion. So the question is, well, how did Moses or anybody in the Old Testament before Christ, how were they saved? How were they in heaven? Well, they believed in whatever knowledge about God and his promises were revealed. And so when Adam, um, and what we have in Adam, I believe Adam will be in heaven. Here's why. In Genesis um, chapter 315, after the fall, after they've sinned, God begins to pronounce curses. And with that, what he has is to so the serpent, he says the woman will have a seed. Ultimately, the woman will have a child, and he will crush, you will crush his head, or you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That was the very, very beginning, the, the very beginning of the gospel narrative, and that is that the, from the woman through humanity, ultimately, God was going to work a way to undo and, uh, evil in this world. And so it was just a little bit, but it was by grace God had to, God promised it. He didn't have to. He could have just wiped everybody out. He promised it, and it was through his word. And the reason why I think Adam believed is because he responded in faith. And you say, well, how did he respond in faith? Well, up until that moment, if you read through Genesis, um, um, Eve didn't have a name. She, her name was woman up until that point. And ever since then, no woman has ever wanted to be addressed by, by woman, right? And so Adam changes her name to Eve, which in some ways means giver of life. And so he believed From this woman. And he thought maybe from her, but he knew God is going to save through um, humanity. He's going to work through humanity. Well, you fast forward to Abraham, it says Abraham was justified or accounted. God accredited him righteousness. That righteousness didn't come from him, but he trusted and believed in God's word. Was it a perfect faith? No. Have you seen Abraham's life? Not at all. But he believed. And so forth, and so forth, and so forth. But they believed in the promises of God, that God was going to do something. As the narrative, ultimately the narrative continued to unfold, the progressive narrative would begin to see the prophet spoke about a Messiah that was to come. And then you read through Revela- excuse me, Isaiah chapter 53, and you hear about this, this Messiah who's going su- um, to be beat, who's going to die, and the me will be made righteous, as uh, Isaiah chapter 53 says. Where is this going to happen? And so they're looking forward to it. We, on the other hand, look back to it. We look back to the cross, and we know it's Jesus. We know what God was doing now. That our vantage point is one, it's clearer than theirs. Both of us, by faith and grace, for sure. That's why the writer of Hebrews, after you go through Hebrews 11, there's like this hall of fame of faith. There's just name after name after name after name. And we're like, we love those people. And the writer of Hebrews finally says, but they themselves didn't have what you have. Because we see everything that they looked forward to, that they only saw a shadow. But we can see in Christ Jesus. And so the answer to that question, how were they saved, the same way we were saved, by faith in who God was, by his grace working in our life, and believing in his revealed word and his plan of redemption, and that we now ultimately know that his plan of redemption was through Christ. Everybody was saved by Christ, though. Everybody. Um, They believed in what God would do, but his blood, as we'll get to later because it's a question that comes up, was efficient for all of those in the Old Testament who believed in him and every single body else who would ever believe in him. So, next question. I've never heard the upstream-downstream analogy before. Neither did I. It's at 9 o'clock last Sunday. It came to me. It was awesome. Thank you. Um, I've talked to many people who say they found God, and I've said that many times myself. Is that correct phrase to use if God works upstream? Do we find him, or does he place a calling on our hearts in order to, for us to seek him so we're found? Essentially, what I'm asking is who finds who. I love it. Let's boil it down, Ricardo. We'll make it easy for you. <laughs> I love this question. It, to me, there's a sweetness to this of going, I just want to know, like, I love Jesus But did I find him? Did he find me? Is it wrong for me to say this? Let me just tell you this. If you say that God found you, great. If you say Jesus found you, great. If you love and and follow Jesus, better, best. That's what matters. Here's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us in Titus chapter three that the spirit has to regenerate our heart. That means quicken our hearts that we can now see something we couldn't have seen, that we have the ability now to do something we could not do, and that is choose and reach out for a loving God. So we do respond to him. We do find him, but it's because God himself finds us. And so when people ask me, did you find God or did God find you? Simply what I say is, listen, God had to have found me because I was not looking for him. I was not looking for him. And everybody else's experience may be different. They say, I was actually looking for him. And I don't want to discredit your experience. We're saying behind the scenes, what the Bible says is that God began to do a work in your life. And so if you're a Christian, excuse me, if you're not a Christian in this room right now, and you're going, but I want to find Jesus, it could be because Jesus is already pursuing you. Good news. Good news. Good news. So um, if you want to say who does what, say what you want to say, but God found you. Um, (laughs) If God upstream elected people, then does that mean that Jesus only, this is the hardest question. Uh, So we're going to skip it. Can we go that next? (laughs) If God upstream elected people, then does that mean that Jesus only died for those people? If he died for everyone, then why doesn't everyone have a choice to follow him? Let me try to phrase this in a better way, because I think what this person is asking is, was Jesus' blood sufficient for everybody, or was it only sufficient for those who he trusted, excuse me, those who he elected upstream? Is it for, um, was it sufficient for everybody, or only for those in whom he chose, right? So many people have debated over this for years, and here's what I would answer this, and it's a short answer. Jesus says these words in the gospel where he says, I came for my people, I lay my life down for my people. The Father has a people. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And it is all of these words that Jesus talks about this. But to to, to answer the question simply, I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus' blood was sufficient for everybody. Seven point whatever billion people in the world. Uh, Sufficient for them. Meaning it's possible. It's not that there's a ration in his blood. He's not like going, sorry, in 2002 we ran out. Um, After that, you guys are... Kind of on your own. We'll figure it out later. We'll see if we can bring some more. But as of right now, you know, it's like our water, our water issue we have, right? No, no, no. It's sufficient for all. However, it's efficient, right? Meaning it's efficacious. It's going to do something. Efficacious, meaning whatever purpose Jesus intended for that blood, it's going to happen. It is sufficient for everybody. It is efficient for those who would trust in him those who trust in him. That second part of that question, so why doesn't everyone have the choice to follow him? I think that's a different question from the first question, because the choice in itself is, um, you have free will. God has created us with the moral as well um, as a rational will. However, because of what sin has done that we read in the Bible, especially Romans 1, 2, and 3, Jeremiah 17, and so forth, because of what sin has done, that we would not naturally seek God. Romans chapter 3, quoting Isaiah, says this, no one is righteous. No, not one. You say, but that has nothing to do with that. Then it says, no one seeks God. Okay, that has something to do with that. Right? No one seeks God unless God does something. So the first question is sufficient for all. If everybody in this room wants to believe in Jesus, then his blood is for you to trust him and cover you, wash you, renew you, and you are with him forever. He's never going to lose you. It's is good news. Um, it's efficient for every single person who would trust in him. Many people um, that are rejecting him, so it's not so much that God doesn't love people and has not given his son for people, it's that people are rejecting his son. So, that's how I answer that. <laughs> Thanks. I don't, know. I don't even know what to do with that. Uh, <laughs> um, how, do, how, do, uh, how do any of us really know that we are called, chosen, elected by God? Okay. Upstream. God does all this. We don't know. Like, we weren't there. He didn't consult with any of us. We don't know. We live our life downstream. And so this is going to sound really simple, but if you love Jesus, you believe that he died for your sins, all of them, past, present, and future, and there's no way to know God except for through him, you believe in his death and his resurrection, you confess with your mouth, you believe with your heart that he's Lord, then you were saved. And so you can, that's how you know. Do you trust Jesus? And he's never going to throw you back. God doesn't draw you into himself and go, never mind. There's no never minds with God. He says, you're mine, you're always mine. And so if you, if you want to know, are you his, don't, don't worry about being elect or chosen. Do you trust Jesus? If you trust Jesus, yeah, you're his, and you're always going to be his. Now, you can do um, some theological reflection and go, oh, maybe he did, but don't ever worry about who's elect and who's not elect. I think I'll share this maybe later with one of the questions, but don't, don't, don't worry about who's elect and who's not elect. Worry about people trusting in Jesus, and if you yourself are looking for assurance, um, Don't always look to your behavior, though obedience is a form of assurance, but just because you do good things doesn't mean you're Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who saves you. Constantly ask God, remind me. I have to say this. Remind me that I'm accepted by what Jesus did, not because of what I did. Because there's some stuff that I do sometimes that I go, man, I should not be a part of this. But I'm not a part of it because of what I did and because of what I didn't do. I'm a part of it because of what he did, Jesus, on our behalf. Amen? Next question. In light of our, commit, our comment on children not being able to be saved according to their Christian upbringing by association, which we, regu- we agree with you on, thanks. Um, <laughs> could you comment on how the verse in Proverbs 22, 5 and 7, bring up a child and the way that he should go fits in the discussion or is it totally unrelated? Okay, so Proverbs 22, I believe it's 22 verse 6. Here's what Proverbs 22 verse 6 says. Train a child in the way that he should go and when he grows older, he will not depart. I believe that's what it said, but let me read it for sure. Yes, train a child up the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so how does that fit? Because what I did say last week is just because you're raised in a Christian family doesn't mean that you're gonna be a Christian. Um, many of us know people who were not raised in Christian families who love Jesus, and we have family members who are raised in Christian families who don't love Jesus, and so how do we reconcile that? Here's how we reconcile it. Within the Bible, there are different genres. There's poetry. There's history. There's letters. And there's a way that you interpret those things. Um, they're not, you can all interpret the same way. So when it comes to uh, wisdom literature, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, things like that, we take those as wisdom, meaning this is the way God is and the way we ought to live in this world. This is the best way of living. It's wisdom. It's not a promise. A promise is God will never leave you nor forsake you. You bank on that. A promise is you trust in Christ, nothing will separate you from his love. That's a promise. You bank on that. Wisdom is this is how we ought to live in light of the promises of God. So in light of God's promise that he saves sinners, we raise our little children up in the way of God. And so our role is we have to put down, so to say, the metaphorical logs and pray that God would bring the fire and he would open up their eyes. But it doesn't promise us just because we raise our kids that way that God's going to save them. He's saying this is just wisdom. Chances are the way that it usually works, the way that God usually operates, is that those who raise their kids and trusting in Christ and believing in Jesus in a home that fosters that, parents that show an example of that, who lovingly discipline them as well as encouraging them, um, those kids usually become Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that they will, that's not a promise. It, it's like the proverb we have in our culture. An uh, apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Last, last hour I said the dentist away. Him too, right? And so the, the, the wisdom is that is if you eat healthy and, and you take care of yourself, chances are you will not have to go to the doctor that much. But uh, many of us eat healthy. You know, some of us eat healthy and exercise and stuff and we still have to go to the doctor. So the way we do it is it's just not a promise though, it's wisdom. Next question. Two related questions. If only, if only certain people, an innumerable amount, are elected? Does that mean those who aren't elected cannot be saved? Um, does God desire that all be saved? Okay, let's deal with that first one really quick here. Um, are elected does not mean that those who aren't elected cannot be saved. Okay, I, here's a problem. With, here's a problem with that question. And whoever asked it, not that there's a problem with you, um, <laughs> is just making sure is that the, and it says certain people are elected. Does that mean that they cannot be saved? I think we're missing. We're jumping over a whole part. We're par- we're thinking about a part that upstream God did elected. And then we're jumping past most of the downstream stuff and we're saying, who, who can and cannot be saved? And I would say, um, I just don't think that that's, th- that that's a biblical question that we have from the scripture. When we begin to start asking people um, and thinking in our evangelism and our discipleship if someone is elect or not, I, listen to me, I think that's a lie from Satan. I really do. When I first began to wrestle with this and learn this, I used to ask certain questions of like, in my head, like when I would share the gospel with people and they'd believe and some people wouldn't believe they'd go, oh, maybe they're not elect. Guys, nowhere in scripture are we caused to even think like that. Nothing prompts us to say who's in or who's not. That language is terrible. What we're prompted is we share the gospel, we share the gospel, we share the gospel, we go back and we share the gospel, we go back again and we share the gospel and we trust that God saves. He might have saved some before others. But let me just share a personal story. I didn't do this last, last, last hour. Um, so when I first begin to wrestle with this, I begin to ask, is my father elect? I've had so many conversations with him about Jesus. I just want to know if he's elect. And I prayed and prayed and prayed all downstream. Prayed and prayed and shared and shared and prayed and prayed. Just couldn't get it. And, um, and, and, and I remember years ago coming to this point like, well, maybe he's just not elect. That's terrible. Because you know what that means? It means you get your foot off the gas. And God told us to go. Um, don't ever let it be at the end of this world when we see Jesus that he says, hey, if you would have just shared again, if you'd have just shared the gospel again, if, you, if you'd have just prayed, why, why did you stop? That shows far less of our belief in God. And I know that question's not getting there, but here's what happened the other night. I called my dad, and, and we don't talk very often, and I said, What are you up to? And I had, I'd recommended this church from the go to a friend of mine out in California. And he goes, Oh, you know, I'll just start reading my Bible about three to four times a week. And I'm like, What? I'm like, almost crashed my car. And, and I'm like, He goes, Yeah. And he starts talking, and it was very clear. It was very clear. Oh, my goodness the unthinkable has happened. My dad's a Christian. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to your buddy's church, Albert. I'm like, are you kidding me? He goes, I drive an hour and 15 minutes each way to get there. He goes, I love hearing about Jesus. And I said, well, what, what do you like about it? And he goes, I love about everything. He goes, He's fi- I finally have had someone to share the gospel with where I, I feel like I realize Jesus is not mad at me. He died for me. Because my whole life I've been guilty that I couldn't get it. He died for me. He's more of a friend and a savior than someone who's after me. Man, I just lost it. Um, and to think that years before, I'm asking the question, is he or is he not elect? <laughs> it's a dumb question. Here's what I should be doing. Here's what we should be doing. On our knees, God, save them. And sharing the gospel, let me tell you how much God loves us. Let me tell you what, how much God shows his love by giving him his son. And so I don't believe, I never in any conversation that I believe that someone can't be saved because God has not given me the reason. If he whispered in my ear and said, not him, I, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thankful that he doesn't do that. I'm thankful he doesn't do that. Doesn't God desire that all will be saved? Okay, there's, there's two texts that are like really good texts. Um... I believe 1 Peter chapter 4, I believe it's verse 2, um, he says that he desires all to be saved. Not 1 Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Peter chapter 3, I believe verse 8, that he also says he desires all to be saved. However, if, if you do some careful Bible study of those two texts, what you'll see is you have in both of them, one in Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy, it talks about kings and, and people of high authority to pray for them, and that God desires all peoples to be saved. Now, that could mean People from every different sector, every different people group, to be saved. And you can go. Well, he's not talking about everybody. He's talking about saving people from every different people groups. So go okay. And if you go to Second Timothy, Simi- Second Peter, Chapter Three, Verse Eight, it says that um, the same thing essentially. But it's talking to Christians. And so God could be saying, I want to make sure all of the people I've elected are saved. Or it could be just talking to Christians. So you can you can get out of it that way, whether you um, interpret it that way or not. But you can get out of those two verses that way and people have tried to. However, I'm going to throw one even better, I think, than both of those verses, and that's Ezekiel chapter 18, and I believe also uh, chapter 33. God says this, I take no pleasure and no desire um, in the punishing of the wicked. He said, I don't like it. I don't take any pleasure. So if anybody's ever thinking that somehow, because God is passing over people, he's going, yes, it's great. They got what they deserved. Even those who are getting what they deserve justice, God, I, think, I take absolutely no pleasure. No pleasure. And so I think those are the tensions that we live with. And I think what Jesus gives us, what Paul gives us, what Peter gives us, um, what Jesus gives us, what the Bible gives us is our posture as Christians. When people begin to get this, you know, people begin to understand Romans 9, they usually get really arrogant, and that's ridiculous. The whole point is you, you couldn't do it. God did it. How does that make you prideful, Right? I mean, if people take a look, it's like elected. They look at it like you, you're, you're, the, you're the first picked in the draft, you're on the team and because you're so awesome. No. The whole point is you suck, right? You could never play the sport, you weren't any good, and the coach said, eh, well, come on, right? And it's like there's, there's no, there's, there's, so there never should be any arrogance in that at all. Um, but our posture should be that of that God desires. God desires all to be saved, Man, that should be our posture. So okay, what does that mean? Let me give you that there's two wills of God, and people are uncomfortable with this. There is what most people call the perfect will of God as well as the permissive will of God. The perfect will of God is what God, or the effective will of God, what God's going to do. He's going to save sinners. The Bible's clear. he's not going to save everybody. But then there's also, also the permissive will of God. He allows things. God says that we should be doing certain things. I should be more kinder as a husband, and you as a wife, as a friend, and so forth. But w- he allows us to be who we are. He allows it. And how you reconcile those things, it's like almost to think, well, and it's true, God doesn't get what he desires? Yeah, because he chooses not to. Why? Again, I don't know. I don't know. And no one knows, right? Um, so we have, we have that sense of what he does. And so here's our posture in this when it comes to evangelism. You got to ask yourself the question, do you have the posture of God? Do, are you desiring for people not to be saved? And don't just say I desire it. Who are you telling people about Jesus that don't know him? Who are you praying for? Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene. You know, when he rides in on the, on the donkey on Palm Sunday. What does he do? He weeps. Two times in scripture, he weeps. One is over his dead friend, Lazarus. The other one is over, over the people who wouldn't believe. Because he knew their hearts. He knew that they were rejecting him. And he wept. He didn't go, they're going to get it in the end. He goes, no. He loves them. He weeps. When's the last time we wept over people that didn't know Jesus. That should be the posture of the church. You see, Paul himself, in Romans 9, 1 through 5, I have anguish in my heart towards my friends, my family, that don't know Jesus. So that's the posture that we should be able to have. Last question. I'm going to do two more. I was wondering why there is an open invitation for individuals to accept Jesus during the services. Do me a favor, because I know it's in there. Can you guys put the question up there about uh, Romans 9 and the heaven deal? I know we're going to go a little bit longer. That's all right. But one of our high school kids asked it. And and when a high school kid asks a question, darn it, we're going to answer it. All right. (laughs) So I'm confused as to Paul was saying, would we be willing to cut off? He would be willing to be cut off from Christ for the sake of others. Is heaven not as good as we make it out to be? Why would Paul be willing to get rid of something as amazing as that? Does this mean our, I think it's our, school kid, um, doesn't mean our love for others should be greater than that for Christ and heaven. The la- that you just, their second question is, um, not a, take heaven out of it. Pa- Paul is speaking in hyperbole. It's, it's like, um, the sons are playing today. It's like, I would give my right arm to play for the sons, right? And the truth of the matter is neither gonna happen. Um, Or someone tries to speak in hyperbole to communicate something that's true. If someone who loves their spouse or something would say, I would go, you know, (laughs) it's a wonderful life, right? He goes, what do you want, Mary? You want the moon? I'll get the moon for you. Like he couldn't get the moon for Mary, right? It's George, right? And so what, (laughs) but what he's telling her is, I really, really, really like you. So Paul is speaking in hyperbole saying, I want you to know Jesus so bad that I would be willing to be cut off. He's not literally saying, "Um, I'm giving up heaven. That's not his to even say. So, that's that. Sorry, guys. One more question. All right, why do we not give altar calls? That's essentially what it's saying. There's always great worship sermons which lead the people to Christ with prompting from the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Um, so, <laughs> altar calls. Okay, just by a show of hands. How many of you guys trusted in Christ because you, walk, you walked on an altar? Wow. The morning service, more like the godlier people. Um, so, so altar calls in themselves, there's nothing wrong with an altar calls. We don't we don't believe that they're bad or churches that do them are wrong. We have consciously made a decision not to do altar calls. Here's why. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for this, but there. Are, how many of you guys don't raise your hand? <laughs> how many of you walked on an altar, only to know that years later you know that you never really trusted in Christ? right. I'll raise my hand because I'm up here. I did. When I was 10 years old, they gave that invitation, and then two of my best friends got up, and I'm like, what? What are you guys not like going on? I'm not going to get left behind. And so I walked down the aisle. I prayed the prayer with my grandfather. It was amazing. Afterwards, my mom took me to Sizzler, and I'm like, all you can eat is shrimp? I'm getting saved next week too, right? However, here's what's beautiful about it. There's a generation of people that that was their experience. My mom will tell you. My grandma will tell you. People who have been to Billy Graham Crusades will tell you. Don't ever mock that. Like that, that was awesome, and I don't want to dis- just—I don't want to even at all belittle your experience. But we never see it anywhere in the Bible mandated to give altar calls. Um, when three thousand were saved, when five thousand were saved, when five hundred were saved, you never see Peter, Jesus, or Paul giving an altar call. God saves sinners, and we don't call people to the altar; we call them to Jesus. We call them to trust in Jesus. Now, the chances are, if you're saying, "But I would believe in Jesus if I could." Listen, if you want to believe in Jesus, it's because God is already at work in your life. Here's why we will call you to. Repent and believe. So we'll, we'll, we'll close with this. We're not going to do an altar call, but here's what we do. If you're not a Christian in this room, and you've never trusted in Christ, I'm calling you to trust in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your knowledge of Scripture. Don't trust in your sin. Don't say you can't get in. Jesus. Trust in his finished work for you. Romans chapter 10, which we'll get to eventually says that if you profess with your mouth and you believe with your heart, I mean, if you say I believe in Jesus and you believe in your heart, that means God has already at work in you. And, it's, and Paul says, then you will be saved. You will be saved. Downstream, you will have life with Jesus for all eternity in his love. The rest of how you live as a Christian, we will continue to be doing that together as a family, as a spiritual family. But if you profess in your, in your, in your, with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Now, if you say, but I would love to talk to somebody, I'd love to pray with somebody, we're gonna have people to the right we got people to the left. If you want to come up and pray and have people lay hands on you, uh, tell them, I just believed in Jesus for the first time, do it, by all means. But what we're saying is, we can't save you, Jesus saves you. If you are saying, I think I believe in Jesus, congratulations, the Spirit of God is at work. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you. I thank you so much for the gospel, for the good news of Christ. God, we're thankful that we're getting, getting past Romans 9. God, we thank you more than anything that you've given us a cross. And on that cross where your son hung his head and he died and he bled for us, and he did accomplish salvation for every single person who would believe in him. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, he promised new life in which we will have new life. And until he comes and restores all things, Lord, help us to hold fast to the truth of Scripture, to the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Help us as a people to continue to follow you, Lord, continue to present and hold out the gospel and call people to Jesus that there may be repentance and faith of people to be a part of your family. God, we are thankful for your grace. So It's in your name we pray, amen. I want you guys to just uh, sit in this moment and whether you're a Christian or even if you're not a Christian, just take this moment right now, pray that prayer again. Confess with your mouth, Jesus, you are Lord and you did die for my sins and you are my savior. And sit there and thank Jesus. Just sit in a moment and be thankful for what Christ has done on your behalf. In just a moment, Blakeman will come and he'll lead us in a time of response and I will continue in our service.